Good morning. Welcome to Crestview Inspiration, a ministry of encouragement from Crestview Baptist Church in Canton, North Carolina. We want to share with you sweet songs of worship and an uplifting word from the scriptures. While you listen, may the spirit of grace flow from heaven into your heart and home, right where you are. Mercy reigns, unending love. 
The next song that I want to share with you all today is called Home. I'm Pastor Mark Page. I wrote this song um, just when looking at the world today and felt very low. Then I was reminded that this world's not my home. This isn't the end of the story for us as believers in Jesus Christ. shines for all I can't wait to stand upon the mountain of his glory the mountain of God when I get home I will run to the presence of the Holy One to worship God alone when I get home I will fly on the wings of angels to the throne of God and cry he's holy my God is holy of Jesus shining with the brightness of the sun he'll restore what sin and death have broken he will lift my earthly chains as I'm standing there by grace when I get home of the Holy One to worship God alone. When I get home, I will fly on the wings of angels to the throne of God and cry, He's holy and so holy. The Lamb upon His throne I know him and I'm known. He's holy, so holy. Forever he will reign. He is worthy of our praise. He's holy. As angels cry and saints rejoice, the Lamb of God will lift 
his voice like water pouring from the stream the spirit who has set me free and the father will declare his reign as jesus calls me out by name i'll step into the life he bought at calvary surrounded by the bride of christ that he redeemed i'll step into the life he bought at calvary surrounded by the bride of christ that he redeemed when i get home i will To the presence of the Holy One To worship God alone When I get home I will fly On the wings of angels to The throne of God and cry He's holy It's so holy, yeah The Lamb upon I know him and I'm known He's holy So holy And sometimes I Can't wait to go home Hello friend, I'm going to be back in the 11th chapter of Daniel today I do love the beautiful worship music And the atmosphere of worship and I pray you sense the sweetness of the Lord's presence through this worship music. Today we're continuing in the prophetic passage of the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 11, which requires a lengthy explanation to understand this prophecy. If there's ever a time we need to study biblical prophecy, it is now. As we are in the perilous last days predicted by the Apostle Paul, we must keep our spiritual eyes attuned to the markers around us that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. So I want to read today uh, from that chapter 11, and I have divided this chapter into six sections, and today we're going to be looking at the verses 13 through 20. If you can, read along with me. If you're in a place where you can't, just listen. The Bible says, For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south sh shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. 
But a ruler shall bring the reproach against him to an end, and with the reproach removed he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. The main idea is God's prophetic markers prepare us for the end times. The comforting truth revealed in this passage is that God has given us prophetic markers to point to the time of the end and prepare us for what's coming. I want to point out three specific prophetic markers that we can see in this passage. Number one, there's the marker of the battle for control of Israel, verses 13 through 16. This section of text continues the theme, really, of last week's message that God's sovereign purposes will be accomplished in our lives. And we can see that specifically in the nation of Israel. The details of these two kingdoms that are struggling uh, cause us to really sit up and take notice of what's going on. This struggle for control of the geographical land known today as the area of the Levant uh, is the geographical location of the nation of Israel right on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And we can see in this passage that there is a tremendous struggle around the area of nation of Israel. And, and this prophetic marker indicates that a time in the future will replay this struggle and the outcome has been predicted when the world ruler will set himself up. We begin in verse 13. It says, For the king of the north shall return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. History again records this invasion into the area of modern Syria, which is south and east of Israel, in 201 B.C., when Antiochus III, immediately after the death of Ptolemy IV, who was king of Egypt, musters his forces and reoccupies what is today southern Israel and the Gaza Strip, taking the fortress of Gaza. Then we see in verse 14, the king of the north, which is Antiochus, will launch an offensive against Egypt and Ptolemy V, who's the king of the south, leading up to an epic battle in northern Israel. History confirms what the scriptures say. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south, and violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. The violent men of your people refers to the pro-Greek Jews in Jerusalem who allied themselves with Antiochus III, hoping to win a complete victory and authority over all of Egypt, who's the occupying government, and who currently controlled Israel, just like the prophecy had stated in Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel 8, the Bible says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. So in fulfillment of this text, these violent and ungodly Jewish leaders who fought with Antiochus for power do not succeed. Just like the scripture says in eleven fourteen. but they shall fall. These pro-Greek Jews ultimately fail, for even though Antiochus launched an offensive, Against Ptolemy V of Egypt, a counteroffensive was launched by the powerful general Scopus of the Egyptian forces, who punished all the leaders in Jerusalem and Judah who favored the claims of Antiochus and who had rebelled against the 
Ptolemaic government, thus fulfilling the predicted fall of these Jewish rebels. This counteroffensive by Scopus of Egypt triggered a final battle which occurred in 200 B.C. It's known as the Battle of Paneus or Paneum. In a certain section of his book, The Rise of the Roman Empire, written by Greek historian Polybius, the Battle of Paneum is mentioned. This battle was fought between the armies of Egypt, led by General Scopus, and the Seleucids of Syria, led by Antiochus III. When Scopus uh, went out, he was met with a major loss at this epic battle, where his troops, outnumbered and outgunned by the enemy, succumbed to the powerful cataphracts. The cataphract is a fully armored horse and rider that the Seleucids used in battle. And he succumbed to the superior numbers of infantry. Then General Scopus, situated on the right wing, fled the field, taking 10,000 troops with him. He retreated quickly back to the west and took up refuge in the fortress of Sidon, which is on the Mediterranean coast. But Antiochus brought his army and put a siege against the fortress of Sidon. Other Ptolemaic soldiers fled by scattering the battlefield in all different directions, such as to Jerusalem, to Phoenicia, to Samaria, and Decapolis, all of them, these soldiers were forced to surrender by the end of 198 B.C. Gleason Archer says this, When Scopus finally surrendered to Antiochus III at Sidon, the Holy Land, which is called the Glorious Land here in verse 16, was permanently acquired by the Antioch government to the exclusion of Egypt. Antiochus did not pursue a general policy of destruction, but simply exacted reprisals from the pro-Egyptian party leaders he captured. On his entrance into Jerusalem in 198 B.C., Antiochus was welcomed as a deliverer and a benefactor. This fulfilled what the scriptures predicted in verse 15, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. There's Antiochus, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Antiochus's victory cemented Seleucid control over Israel and over the area around Israel until the Maccabees in 164 B.C. It was these Greek pagans that built an impressive pagan temple dedicated to the god Pan at Paneus, where the battles fought in northern Israel. I remember my first trip I made to Israel when we landed the bus and drove up to this area at the northern tip of Israel at the foot of Mount Hermon and stepping out into the cool air and literally tasting the cold waters flowing out of the mountain. It is at this location in the Golan Heights, which is now called Caesarea Philippi, where the ice-cold waters of the stream form the headwaters of the Jordan River flowing out of the base of Mount Hermon. The temple remains of the pagan god Pan still are there at the base of this mountain. The occupying Greeks offered live human sacrifice at this site, which today reminds us of all that God has said and how it all happened. The very words of this ancient prophecy were fulfilled, and the marker of the battle for Israel predicts that this little nation will rise from destruction in the last days to eventually be the seat of power for a world ruler, the demon-energized ruler we know from Scripture as the Antichrist. And we will see him later in this chapter. Number two, there's a marker in the plan to conquer Egypt. 
Bible says in verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or be for him. This verse fulfills the prophecy of the very famous daughter of Antiochus, whom he sent to Egypt to marry the king and try to seek to gain control of the southern kingdom. Most people today are familiar with the name Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, through the 1963 epic film Cleopatra, which was a spectacular and a costly love story starring Elizabeth Taylor. But the true story in history shows Antiochus the Great sending his daughter Cleopatra to marry the 10-year-old boy king in Egypt in hopes of gaining influence over the Egyptian kingdom through the child that they would have. When the marriage finally took place in 195 BC, Cleopatra became sympathetic to her husband. She changed her alliance from her father, who's the king of the northern kingdom in Syria, to Ptolemy the fifth, her new husband. So her father gained no advantage over Egypt. And when her young husband died a premature death in 181 BC, Cleopatra became queen regent of Egypt because all the people loved her and appreciated her loyalty to their cause. And she did bear a son, Ptolemy VI, who would eventually take the kingdom. But she died soon after, and any dream of uniting the kingdoms was dashed. But this fulfills the prophecy that God gave Daniel. And then the third marker is there's a marker in the rise of Rome. After this, the Bible says in verse 18, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Basically, these verses describe another war led by Antiochus that occurred after his victory over Egypt. But, but culminated in his demise. This conflict began when an arrogant Antiochus attempted to invade and conquer Greece, specifically at Rhodes, which is fulfillment of the prophecy of the coastland war. When the Bible says he shall turn his face to the coastlands, they're talking about Rhodes. It's the largest of the islands of Greece and is also the island's historical capital. It's located northeast of Crete, southeast of Athens, and is very famous worldwide for the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The citizens of Rhodes appealed to Rome to come to their aid when Antiochus came to attack them. And so Rome did, and they came and they turned back Antiochus and his army and his navy back over the Aegean Sea into what is now modern-day Turkey. The Romans pursued the armies of Antiochus until they met for the final big battle, of his military career. This battle is called the Battle of Magnesia. It's at a location just west of Sardis. In December of 190 BC, the Roman Republic uh, army led by the consul Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus and his allies took on Antiochus the Great in a tremendous battle. The two armies uh, camped northeast of Magnesia, which is modern-day Manissa, Turkey, uh, trying to get uh, provoked into fighting on good terrain. The army of Antiochus had 72,000 troops, and the Roman Greek army had 32,000. The battle resulted in a decisive Roman victory, which led to the Treaty of Apamea, which effectively ended 
Seleucid domination in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, Antiochus had lost the kingdom. And this prophecy notes that the Roman general, Scipio, the ruler that turns back Antiochus, prevails. And we see the rise of Rome in this passage. The scripture gives us clear historical fact way before it happened. And part of the treaty was Antiochus had to transfer a large part of his empire to Rome. And he was required to pay 20,000 talents to Rome, a huge sum of money. And a few select hostages were handed over to Rome one of which was his second son, who was Antiochus IV, who went to Rome during his young years. Now, pay attention to this guy. He's critical to all the end times prophecies. Archer writes, Antiochus the Great met his end in 187 BC when, unable to meet the required payments to Rome out of his exhausted treasury, he resorted to pillaging or attempting to pillage the Temple of Baal at Alimius, the local inhabitants were so incensed that they stormed his modest army with desperate bravery and succeeded in killing him and defending their temple. This fulfilled the prophecy, he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Antiochus the Great died, and his oldest son, Seleucus IV, Philopater, took the throne and sent Heliodorus, his tax collector, to raise funds through severe taxation to replenish the exhausted treasury. History tells us that Heliodorus went to Jerusalem to plunder the temple of Jerusalem, which he had heard was full of gold and treasures. But he had a vision when he got there of mighty angels standing against him and flogging him. So he immediately turned around and left Jerusalem going home empty-handed. We have no other details about this king except he ruled 12 years and died when his assistant, his tax collector, Heliodorus, poisoned him in a successful assassination. This fulfills the prophetic word. One shall arise in his place, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Once again, biblical prophecy comes alive with prediction and then fulfillment concerning the nations of the world and particularly the nation of Israel. Israel will play a key part in the end times and the reforming of the nation of Israel in May of 1948 is the most significant prophetic marker in centuries, cluing us into the impending fulfillment of the events surrounding the rise of a world ruler and a world government. This marker will be critical as we zero in on the events surrounding Israel presently and in the future. So keep your eye on Israel. Let me share with you a final illustration. F.B. Meyer was sailing many years ago to England from Northern Ireland. He told the story of how it was night, and as the ship entered the harbor, nothing was to be seen but a confusing array of lights. Dr. Meyer wondered how the captain could hope to navigate into the harbor safely at night in such a confusing jumble of lights. And so he asked him. The captain took him up to the bridge and said, You see, sir, it's really simple. I'll show you how. Do you see that big light over to the left? And do you see that other big light over there to the right of it? Well, now, keep your eyes on those three lights and see what happens. As Dr. Meyer watched, the big outer light on the left gradually moved in until it coincided with the middle one. 
Then, as the ship turned, the light gradually merged into the third. There now, said the captain, all I have to do is see that those three big lights become one, and then I go straight forward. Friend, the point is that the believer also has prophetic lights to guide him into the will of God. When the scripture and conscience are lined up with the outward circumstances so that the three become one, we need to have no fear. We may find our way forward straight ahead. God's will will be clear, and we will have the guidance of God's prophecy to show us the way. God has given us prophetic markers as lights in a dark world to guide us in each generation in understanding his will and his mysterious working in the world to prepare us for what's coming at the end. It reminds me of the promise God gives in Romans 8. It says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, According to his purpose, God is putting it all together, and sovereign God will accomplish his plan and purpose. And I pray in your life and my life that God, who is controlling human history, will bring us to a full awareness of his will, give us the lights of his prophecy and his word to guide us, and that we'd keep our eyes on the big light, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray as we study this prophecy that you will illumine our hearts and minds to not only what has been fulfilled in years past, but God, what is being fulfilled right now in the middle of this pandemic in the world, in the middle of the events that are swirling around in the world and in our lives to show us a way forward that you are God and you have a purpose and plan and nothing surprises you. And God, that we can trust you for what lies ahead. Lord, that all anxiety we can let go if we'll keep our eyes fixed on the big light, which is Jesus Christ and on his word. You will guide us, and you will help us, and you'll hold us and carry us all the way to the fulfillment of your will. And strengthen us, Lord, I pray. And we give you the honor and the glory. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Friend, walk in faith today knowing that God holds your life in his hand, his sovereign hand, and you can trust him for his promise to work out the good in your life despite all the difficult circumstances that you face. Until next week, God bless you. Thank you for listening to Crestview Inspiration. May this ministry touch your heart, encourage you, and strengthen you. And may the Lord bless you in your spiritual walk this week. So on behalf of the Kresge family, we invite you back next week, Friday at 10 a.m. on WPTL as we spread the good news of Jesus.